This morning's reading is from Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Follow along with me. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall, built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Kiddos that want to go to their classes, now's the time to go with Miss Christina. So today marks the beginning of a new major section in the book of Amos. We're getting into the end game of the book. It's coming to a conclusion. And I thought it might be a good time to give us a quick recap of kind of where we are in this book and what events have happened so far that have led up to this point. We know that the man Amos, he had no lineage or upbringing as a prophet. He is remarkably unremarkable. He's a shepherd, a fig farmer. That's all we know about him. Yet God called him to leave the Judean wilderness to call the people in the northern kingdom of Israel to repentance. And so 170 years prior to Amos, if we think back 170 years prior to Amos, it's when the united kingdom of Israel was split. In Jeroboam I, he sets up the northern kingdom of Israel with ten tribes. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who is the son of David, set up the southern kingdom of Judah with two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And the people, they'd have to travel for feast days. They'd have to travel for sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem, which is located in the southern kingdom of Judah. So Jeroboam, the ruler of the northern kingdom, he had a grand idea. In order to please the people, cut down on travel costs, let's build some new temples in Bethel and in Dan. And so he not only sets up these new temples, he provides golden calves at these temples and hopes to aid the people in their worship. None of these things prescribed by God. They were just done for convenience sake. And for these 170 years leading up to Amos, since Jeroboam I, this kingdom has been ruled over by 13 different kings. And not one of them decides to remove these idols during that whole 170 years. God is sending prophets. He's sending warning after warning. But they would not listen. 
30 years before Amos gets there, before he shows up on the scene, the prophet Elisha shows up. He prophesies that they will have victory over Syria. And just like all of God's word is true, they defeat Syria and they are living in prosperity like never before. They extend their borders. They are in a position of economic and military might. They're prospering. They have no rival. And they see this prosperity as the favor of God. They had so much religious activity and zeal, but they had no real regard for God or His ways. They were immoral and unjust. They were disobedient. And instead of covenant blessings, they would partake in covenant curses. We read earlier in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's closeness to them, His, His special provision for them, leads to these covenant curses being enacted. He knew them. He, he gave them instruction, and yet they forsook Him. God's people, who He had ordained to be this manifestation of His glory, instead, they had become a place of worship, of comfort, a place of luxury. They were asleep in the light. And as a result of their hard hearts, we see their future foreshadowed in Amos chapter 4. With one generation, they would, within one generation, they'd be invaded by the Assyrian army and dragged away on hooks. Amos 4.2, we read, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And sure enough, 722 B.C., the Assyrians would invade as an act of God judging His people. And in the smoking ruins of their city, they would be dragged away with hooks in their lips and in their noses. This would be their future fate. In chapter 5, we saw last week Amos arrive while they were celebrating, while they're at their feast, and he pleads with them to turn. He points out how God hates their songs and their prayers because they are coming from a depraved heart. They were not encountering God during their visit to the temples. They were rejoicing in their own pride and their religious rituals, completing the checkbox of their spirituality. They had all this religious devotion, all this tradition, but underneath they were a rotting corpse of hypocrisy and self-worship. And isn't it amazing, as we have this book written in the 8th century, written by a relatively obscure, unknown farmer, but yet it is so relevant to us today. Doesn't this just illustrate for us the unchanging truth of God's Word, the divine inspiration of Scripture, how all these years later it's relevant, it exposes our hearts, it shows us the deceptiveness of our sin, our temptation to worship anything but God. It shows us our tendency to justify ourselves to think that, that we are good. To think that we have security in other things. And it shows us the absolute danger of religious zeal and tradition without holiness. It shows the state of many churches today. Where people can attend worship time and time again. Pray our prayers. Sing our songs. And go home exactly the same. Remaining unchanged. 
shows us our apathy towards injustice and our justification that we make to ourselves for living in comfort at the expense of others. How, it shows us how easily we can be asleep in the light, just as Israel was. These words of Amos to Israel then and his words to us today, they're like a skilled doctor pressing and probing a patient in order to find unhealthy areas of concern. They're here to press and probe our hearts. Words not to harm us, but to find areas where we are deceived, to expose lies for what they are, reveal areas where we don't measure up. And we'll see today that God is going to put his people to the test. And he's going to measure them, not according to what they think is right, not according to any of their human standards, but by his holy standard. Let's pray that we would hear these words afresh and align our hearts with his this morning. Dear God, as we hear your word, as we see you measuring, evaluating your people by your standard, Lord, as we see the judgment to come, the consequences of sin, Lord, please align our hearts with yours. Help us to see rightly the deceitfulness of sin in the glories of the love of Christ, God, that there is no hope to be found outside of you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So far throughout Amos, we've seen judgments against the foreign surrounding nations, judgments against Judah, and judgments against Israel. And so in chapters 1 and 2, where all the judgments are made, uh, chapters 3 and 6 serve as the reasons for these judgments. So 1 and 2, we see the judgments that have been made against these nations. 3 to 6 unpacks the reasons for this judgment. And this focus has been entirely on Israel and their sins. Their religious zeal, but forsaking worship of God. Instead of protecting the most vulnerable of society, they exploit them. They sell their own people into slavery. And and now we enter into chapter 7. The judgment has been made. The reasons for the deserved judgment have been given. And now just to make sure that the point is brought home to his audience, God has shown Amos in a vision of how he will deal with them. God has shown them in words, and he, will, he just wants to paint, to make sure they get it, paint a picture of them, of their future fate. So the first section is judgment in 1 and 2. The second is the reasons for this judgment in chapter 3 through 6. And today we see the beginning of the third section, the results. Five prophetic visions given to Amos that show the destiny to come. Lastly, give you a little sneak peek in chapter 9, we're going to see the glimmer of hope. The budding plant sprouting from the ground in the rubble after a nuclear bomb. The restoration. But before any restoration comes, let us turn to these visions. Five visions that God had shown Amos. Three of which we're going to look at today. These visions, they show us the nature of God. A nature that can seem contradictory at first glance, but as we explore it, we can see that it makes perfect sense. In the first two visions, which are grouped together, we're going to see that God's nature is merciful and He is slow to anger. And in the third vision, we see that God's, by God's very nature, He must judge sin according to His holy standard. So the first vision... Amos relays to the nation of Israel is found in verse 1. 
This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So God is showing Amos that he's forming locusts to come upon the land. In an agrarian society, crops meant survival. There was no grocery store to be had. Uh, crops were everything. People were, you think people pray for rain now? They were praying for rain a lot more back then. Without crops, they would die of starvation. And the timing here of the locusts in this vision would be at its absolute worst. It would be during the latter growth after the king's mowings. I'm sure we all know what that means, right? Um, no, what does that mean? The king's mowings, that was a tax to be given on every crop. Essentially, the first fruits of the crop would go to be set aside to be given to the king, his household, support the royal army and staff. And the latter growth is when the promise of spring would be at its sweetest. When the crops and veggies were beginning to grow after this tax had been set aside. And this would be the people's portion. These locusts would come right after the king got his share, but before the people got theirs. And you might be thinking, bugs aren't that big of a deal. I'll be happy to share with you some locust facts I learned this week. Locusts today found in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, uh, a locust swarm can cover up to 460 square miles. And in, in this swarm, uh, uh, between 80 million locusts can be contained in a, a half uh, square mile. And so a swarm this size would be able to eat around 420 million pounds of plants a day. They would be left with nothing. These swarms would come taking everything. And Amos responds to this terrible loss of the harvest. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Israel in their prime would have considered themselves anything but small. Yet Amos pleads with God not to crush them due to their smallness. And God, in his mercy, because of Amos' prayer, he relents the judgment of locusts. It shall not be, said the Lord. We see this same pattern play out in the second vision, very similarly. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. This time, God showed Amos a vision of fire so great that it would devour bodies of water. It would eat up the land. We may read this and think it seems hyperbolic, but this is nothing but consistent with the power of God expressed in Scripture. Just listen to this description of God's fire in Deuteronomy 32. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. We see God's complete control and His unlimited power over all throughout creation in Psalm 97. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. This mighty God of the universe showed Amos this vision of his plans to judge his people by an unquenchable supernatural fire. And Amos responds, Oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. He cries out to God, not for forgiveness this time, but just says, please stop. And once again, he pleads with God based on the smallness of this nation. 
He knows that God is merciful, slow to anger, and completely in control. And Amos fears that Israel, the house of Jacob, cannot stand under this death sentence. So God is moved with compassion. And once again, God hears Amos' cry, and he relents. In these two visions, we get a vivid picture of the heart of God. When God relents, we should not think of this in terms of a moral change. God is not saying, oh, I had a bad idea, but Amos pointed that out to me. Therefore, I'm going to do what Amos says. No, Lord, God in his relenting is using human language to convey spiritual truths. These are anthropomorphic terms, big word. But all that means is uh, that they're putting it in human terminology, in ways in which we're able to conceive of God in his greatness. It's not as if God flies off the handle and makes harsh judgments. God's wrath towards sin is eternally there. Equally eternal is his determination to save and to keep a people for himself. So will God ultimately judge sin? Yes. Is God's desire to forgive those who truly turn from their sin? Yes. Listen to God's plan from eternity past to extend grace and to shower mercy on undeserving sinners in 1 Peter. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. is pointing the hearts of these people upward to a God who is sovereign to save as much as he is to judge. God is a just God, and he will punish sin. Thank you, sir. Just, God is just as merciful and gracious, and he's ready to forgive the one that turns away from their sin. We see his patience with us in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Assume, uh, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach p- repentance. This is the heart of God. He wants them to forsake their sins. And God relenting means that there is still time for them to repent, but that window is closing. In Israel's sake, the sun is still shining right now, but the planets are moving. And soon the sun of God's grace will be eclipsed. There will be nothing but the darkness of judgment with no time left to turn. In these two, two judgments, not only do we see the patient heart of God that longs for people to be saved, We also see the heart of his servant, Amos. A heart that had been changed by knowing God and is becoming like God. Amos, from the southern part of the divided kingdom, could have had so much disdain for the elite of Israel in the northern kingdom. But seeing these visions, his heart is broken for them. These were his enemies, but yet he pleads for them before God. How passionate How understanding are we to pray for a world that is ripe for fiery judgment? 
Let us be like Amos. When we think about the role of a prophet, many times we reduce it to those who deliver messages and warnings to people. But it is not just to deliver of messages. But uh, the role of the prophet is to intercede on behalf of the people to God. We see prophets doing this such as Moses pleading with God for disobedient people of Israel when they were longing to return to their oppressors in Egypt after God had miraculously delivered them time and time again. Amos sees their smallness before God and he begs for mercy. They thought they were the first among nations, not small. But in comparison to God, they are weak and needy. We should aim in our thinking and in our praying to see the world as God does. Amos' prayer adopts God's thinking, not Israel's thinking. They are small when compared to the shadow of the Almighty. And it's by this prayer, it's by prayer, like the prayers of Amos, that God brings his determined purposes to pass. Isn't that amazing? The mystery of prayer It's by prayer that the will of God is wrought on earth. If we just look at James 5, we think about prayer. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Great power is found in the prayers of the righteous. Doesn't that make you want to pray more? Our prayers matter once again I just ask you to consider where is our heart towards those that would face fiery judgment where is our heart towards those who are in need of mercy and grace just like we were one day do we care for them do we pray for them as Amos does and not only did God send these prophets as loving callback for his people? We have the great prophet in Jesus who is interceding for us before the Father. Romans 8, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Isaiah 53, we see more just the Savior who intercedes for us. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Those who place their faith in Christ, who have turned from their sins and are trusting in him, if we are his, he is pleading our case before the Father, our great prophet, bearing our sin and praying for us continually right now. What a treasure we have in Jesus who gave himself for us, who redeemed us, who who intercedes for us. His ministry was not just to redeem us and save our souls. His ministry is ever-present, going before the Father on our behalf, in our greatest needs, in our greatest struggles. We should be the first to extend mercy and grace because of all that we have been given. In the first two visions, we've seen that God's nature, we've seen that he is merciful, we've seen that he is slow to anger, he's compassionate, he relents, he does not destroy them in totality. 
But next we're going to see that God's very nature, by his nature, he must judge sin according to his holiness. This is where our tension lies. How can God have wrath towards sinners, yet extend mercy? This is where so many divides are found in our religious beliefs. Where we can easily get confused and off base. But I think Amos provides us with some clarity. The first two visions, they were a pair. They were very similar. This third vision is different. Verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. This third vision is not of locusts. It's not of fire. But it's God himself standing beside a wall with a plumb line. A plumb line was a stone or metal weight attached to a string. And it's a weight suspended. It was used by builders and construction workers since the days of Egypt. And it's used to make sure that the building is upright. It's used to tell if something is straight. And it determines the soundness of a structure. This wall was built with a plumb line. And if the door or wall is put up correctly, it's, it is plumb. It's, called pl- it's a plumb. Uh, it's at a true right angle. And so God asks Amos what he sees as God holds up this plumb line. This standard of measurement by which they will be measured. In the first two visions, they're repetitive. Amos prays, God relents. God had turned from this thought of total elimination. But now God has turned to a discriminating test to separate one from the other. And God as the architect and God as the surveyor, he's determined that the soundness of this house of Israel that he has built, it, it, the soundness no longer exists. In Amos... We see no plea for mercy. We see no prayer. God shows them just how bad it is. And Amos sees the nation of Israel as God sees it. Their profession was false. I think one of the worst feelings that you can have, um, I know in my life, uh, especially since having children, is when you can become accustomed to a bad smell so much that you forget that it smells and maybe you go away for a little while you may be gone for the weekend and you come back into your house and you're like whoa what is that but when that smell you find out you've been continually living in that bad smell or something rotted in your wall or something died or myriad of other things uh, that can be one of the worst feel feelings to, to have these smells and not even notice them anymore and just like a bad smell that we get used to, those living in this old house, they couldn't see it. <clears throat> they couldn't see the skewed walls, the unbalanced foundation. They couldn't see the creaky floorboards of injustice that they were living in. They couldn't see their wickedness and how far they had drifted from the goodness of God. In this third vision, Israel has struck out. And like a wall that is out of line, they are scheduled for demolition. This standard of measurement applied to their lives is did they live by God's law? 
God's instruction to them was to be an extension of his presence amongst his people. We see in Deuteronomy 4 just how different they were supposed to be. For what great nation is there that has God, a God so near to him as the Lord our God is to us when we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules as righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The answer to that is none. They were unique. God had given them life and the standards to uphold this life. Everything they needed to thrive and they forsake it. And as God's people, they were to be tested and judged. Just as we are to be tested and judged. And God says that he will never again pass over them. This alludes to the Passover. In which the ones that were spared were the ones who followed God's instruction. And put the blood of the lamb on their dwelling. <clears throat> In his judgment for them. There will be no way out. There will be no more provision provided. No more forgiveness given by God. In this we see more of the nature of God. That, that his wrath is perpetual. It is constant against sin. In Romans 1.18 we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. His wrath is already revealed. It's a ceaseless, constant wrath against sin. And just as he doesn't respond rashly to Amos in relenting, he doesn't suddenly become wrathful. It is continually there. And the only reason it is not poured out in its fullness is because of his divine mercy. Exodus 34 helps bring both these characteristics of God together in one passage. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, right there, it can go on a t-shirt or a mug. But then that last verse, by, but who by no means will clear the guilty? Not something we want to think of all the time. No sin will be overlooked by God. And the question for us becomes, what standard of measurement are you measuring your life by? We won't be measured by our standard. We won't be measured by comparison to others. It won't be whether we did more good than we did bad. It will be His holy standard. And we're called to be holy as He is holy. What is your foundation this morning? And how are you building on that foundation? I just want us to take us through some, some helpful verses in Scripture in Ephesians 5 and apply God's standard to our lives. We're Ephesians 5, we're told to look carefully how we're to walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. How do we live? How do we use our time? If we could see a, uh, you know, um, the screen time app of our lives, daily time, where, where our time goes. Are we walking as wise? Are we looking carefully to use our time for the glory of God, for the good of others? Wives, you're to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Is this the standard of our marriages? Wives, are you submitting to the leadership of your husbands? And husbands, are you leading? Are you sacrificially giving of yourself, seeking one another's good as a married couple? Or do we so easily just compare ourselves to the world and think that we're good? Children, are you honoring your parents before God? Or are you just appeasing them? <clears throat> we read in Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Are our lives marked by doing justice? Do we love kindness? And do we walk humbly with God? Or are we prideful? <clears throat> are we apathetic? And if these are not high callings enough as the people of God, just listen to these words from Jesus, summarizing them all in perfect totality. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these the measure I fear when applied to many of our lives so I never want someone to say man they had so much but yet they did so little God had been so God is so gracious to us but we should never confuse God's patience and his mercy with the neglect of duty we read in Matthew 13 the fate, the reality of those that would die in their sins, that would die under the judgment of God. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the reality that awaits those that are dying in their sins. <clears throat> no harsh word that we have ever spoken will go overlooked. Our apathy, our love of self, will serve as an indictment of our lives before a holy God who by his very nature will not overlook sin. Each of us will be called to give an account for our own actions. I don't know if you heard the story of Matt Emmons, but he was an Olympic sharp, sharpshooter. And at the 2004 Games, Going into his final shot, he had a substantial lead. He really just kind of had to hit the target, and he would win the whole thing. He was that far ahead of the field. And he goes to shoot, and he shoots a perfect bullseye. And, but he looks at the scoreboard, and it, it comes up on the scoreboard that, he, that he'd lost, that he did not win. He's like, what are you doing? This must be a mistake. But by his uh, just not paying attention or uh, just thinking that he had had it in the bag 
what he found out is that he had shot at the wrong target. He made a perfect bullseye on the target right next to the target he was supposed to hit and got a score of zero and walked away with no medal that day. Can you imagine? I've seen grown men, grown men and women, look at their lives and realize that they have been living for the wrong thing. They've been aiming at the wrong target their entire lives. And that doesn't just have to be bad things like money, drugs, whatever. I mean, even good things, even family. Having family is the ultimate. Having lesser things besides God, living for his, by his standard of measurement, not how successful we are, not how well-to-do we are. <clears throat> and maybe you've lived life aiming at the wrong target. Maybe you've grown up in a skewed building, trusting in what you were raised in, raised as nominal Christians or, or a workspace system. If I just do good, if I just do good, God will accept me. And someone one day came with Scripture, the plumb line of God's Word. And we see that God's standards are not our standards. And the foundation of our structure is going to determine the success of our building. And the more and more we add on to that which is already built, it gets worse and worse and worse. It strays further and further. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us to the fate we deserve. He provided us with a Savior who is the perfect standard of measure. He'd live the life we should live, and everyone who turns and repents, places their trust in him, will be spared the wrath of God because Jesus took it for them. Christina read earlier in Ephesians 2 that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Jesus is the cornerstone of all creation and he should be the foundation of our house with him as the cornerstone he fills us with his spirit he grows us in community so often i think how do i get these gospel truths in my head when i'm when i'm doubting when i'm not trusting when i'm insecure whatever it may be and and i know truth i know truth in this area and it, but it doesn't always sink in. And, and two truths that, are, that help me take hold of this gospel. But it's only revealed in the gospel. Is, and we see in Amos' uh, message today that, that one is that we are worse than we think we are. And two is that we are more loved if we are in Christ. We are more loved than we can imagine. It's in the cross that this is lived out. His wrath and his mercy. Our sin is so great that it could only be God uh, that would die for it as an acceptable sacrifice. And we are so loved that God sent Jesus to die in our place so that we would have abundant life. You are worse, the bad news, you are worse than you think you are. But yet he loves you more than you could ever imagine. Let's look at ourselves the way God sees us. <clears throat> and as we see in our final verse, Israel would not heed these words. They would continue to trust in their shaky foundation. In verse 9, the high places of Isaac would be made desolate. Sanctuaries of Israel would be laid waste. 
And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is Isaac, Israel, Jeroboam. These things are listed as just com- completeness, a thoroughness. No one is left unharmed. He'll bring down their social institutions that they depended on, their religion of the temples, and their monarchy, their rule. The reliance upon the faith of their forefathers would come crashing down. So the question I leave us with, beloved, is if God were to judge you right now by his standard, where would you stand? Is your foundation built with the cornerstone of Christ? Or will it be built on a foundation that will one day be wrecked? Let's let our standard of measurement be his. Let's define our lives by his standards. And let's seek him and live. The wrath of God has been taken by the gracious provision of Christ, who is our prophet, who intercedes for us before the Father. And in his goodness, he has left us, left his church with two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, are visible reminders of God's grace to us and to one another. And while baptism is a one-time point of entry into Christ's covenant community, the Lord's Supper is an ongoing meal where we observe, observe and reflect on our identification with him together. <clears throat> Saying in Luke 22, 9, Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. This bread symbolizes his broken body. And the cup, his blood shed on the cross. And as we take these elements, we touch taste and see and remember him. And in this meal of worship, we declare that our substance is found in God. Our cornerstone is Jesus. We take it looking back at what Christ has done. And we take it looking forward to his second coming. And we take it looking inward to examine ourselves, applying the plumb line to our heart. Remembering Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 11, that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if there's brokenness or divisions in your relationships with others, you should abstain from the supper until you can be reconciled. At Covenant Hope, this supper is open to all baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same biblical gospel that we uphold here. And if this doesn't apply to you, if you've not been baptized, or you're not currently a member of a local church, we'd ask you to abstain. There's no shame in that. You can talk with any of our members about what this meal signifies. And after I pray, you'll hear the music play. I invite you to come up and bring the elements back to your seat. They're right over here on this table. Then we'll share this meal together. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that Christ took on flesh and blood. You came to earth as an infant, both fully God and man, loving us to the point of death, taking on the punishment we and our sin deserved. Thank you that when we're in him, we no longer have to fear death or the coming judgment, but that by his wounds we are healed, and through him we are reconciled back to you. Amen.